Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Hi, this is Bob, 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 v, 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 Vila. And now, it's time for the show, This Old Dungeon. The show where grognards go to get their grog on. If we turn the two of us, we're going to get a lot of stuff done. We're going to kick some ass. We're going to be awesome. Featuring your hosts. Hi, this is Bill Barsh. I am the managing director of Paysetter Games and Simulations. Look at this. It's a plumber's nightmare. Hi, this is Edwin. I'm a longtime cast member of Skype of Cthulhu, and I am the 5E editor for Frog God Games. Somebody here call a carpenter? This is Lou Al Lou. I could charitably call myself a game designer and game publisher, but definitely a veteran role player 35 plus years. We work on it the rest of the night, we get it together. We can do this, right? There's no way in hell we can do it. Hey there, this is Lou Alu. The episode you're about to listen to is a little cobbled together. Uh, you see, I was actually away recording remotely from the campus of Purdue University where I was helping out with a 4-H kind of youth camp and career opportunities uh, session. Anyhow, for those of you that might be interested, there are actually some game design workshops uh, that are out there available to 4-Hers, and they're actually using this as an opportunity to maybe start to produce a game design project uh, that would be judged at fairs on a national level. So gamers, uh, you're a helpful group, I know. You might want to contact your local extension office and see if you can be involved in that because they sure could use our type out there helping out with it. This game design uh, project, this uh, opportunity here, covers not only board games but role-playing games and uh, video games, game theory in general. So a little side quest there. Uh, You might want to become involved in that. So anyhow, I'm recording remotely. We've got Bill on the on the cable. We've got Edwin on the cable. We've got Tim Connolly on the cable. We're having a marvelous interview session with him, talking all about Benchley Dale and about first edition Dungeons and Dragons and all the nuances thereof. Uh, when somewhere along the lines, uh, as I'm rifling through my my portable laptop and whatnot, I must have hit the record button and then shut everything down so that it was not recording anymore. So what you're going to hear today is a combination of that first recording session with all of us. And Tim was such a nice fella. He, he sat down with me a second time for an interview. Uh, we're, we're going to place pieces of that in there. Hopefully you'll get the full experience by the time you're done. At any rate, sure appreciate you listening. Don't forget to uh, send us some mail there at thisolddungeon at gmail.com. That's this old dungeon no d with old there it's old uh at gmail.com send us what you're up to in gaming send us questions send us uh comments on what you hear us talking about if you send us an email or if you even send us just a little thing saying hey i want to be part of the contest you'll be entered to win the uh play at home contest when we go to do geek credit we're giving away all sorts of cool rpg stuff Uh, i've got stacks of things that uh, i've been given extra copies of 
uh, or that I've produced extra copies of. Bill's got the same. We're gonna we're gonna share the love out there in RPG land. Uh, so please hit us up. Without further ado, here's the episode. So with us tonight, folks, uh, we've got Tim Connolly of the Benchley Dell Academy. Tim, how are you? Hey, I'm good, Lou. How are you? Not too bad. Uh, good. In full disclosure, this is uh, Tim's second time recording with us uh, due to a little audio slip up on my part. Uh, so he's been just a, a great guy here, uh, hacking it out a second time. Um, Tim, where did you first come across role-playing games? Take us back to that, that magic moment when the hobby first found you. Well, it first started for me in 1978 when I was invited by a next-door neighbor of mine, in New York to come and try this new thing called D&D. And I didn't know the difference between basic or advanced. I didn't know anything, but it turns out that they were playing advanced first edition AD&D. And so I was um, <clears throat> thrown right into a trial by fire, I guess you could say. Most folks begin with basic and move their way towards advanced. Um, for me, it was the other way around. Um, there was a dungeon master who was about maybe four or five years older than me at the time and um, his two younger brothers. So it would be the four of us playing. And um, I think I was in second grade, maybe third grade. Oh, wow. at the time. I, I was only seven years old at the time. And um, one of the other brothers um, was also seven. And then there was one who I think was eight and our DM, I think, was 11 or 12, something like that. We were really young. Yeah. We I, I wouldn't, I would never say, uh, say that, that we, we knew what we were doing uh, <laughs> right off the bat, but our, our dungeon master, bless his heart, Paul Muley, um, who still DMs today, in fact, and he is a member of Benchleydale Academy with us. Paul was um, getting into first edition AD&D and <clears throat> this was 1978. So there was no dungeon master's guide yet. But we had the monster manual and we had the player's handbook. And for us, I guess that was enough. Um, and our DM just used his imagination to fill in the blanks for the rest of the stuff. And um, rather than running us on these long sweeping campaigns or anything even close to that, what our DM would do is he would create his own dungeons using graph paper and he would run us through the dungeons. Now, the dungeons might as well have been murder castles because <laughs> we, we would be dying left and right, but that was okay. We would just always roll up another character again. So I learned pretty early on not to get too emotionally attached to my character, um, which is something I try to impress upon those joining us for uh, their first time nowadays. I say, don't get too attached to your character because, you know, when it dies, you're going to be, not if he dies, when it dies, you're going to be <laughs> uh, ready to roll out your next one, right? So a lot of our players, they have a stable of multiple characters these days. Some of them, I, some of our players even have as many as 15 or 20 characters lined up in the stable, just in oh, wow. case, just ready to roll them out if need be. Um, <clears throat> but going back to 1978, it was a very different time for the hobby. There, there, was, um, there was a lot of exploration and a lot of innovation happening in the hobby then. And 
um, some of our characters back then would have names like Slivel the 19th. And he would be called the 19th because it was that player's 19th attempt to, to run his character <laughs> through our DM's dungeon. Um, it was fun. And um, later on, I was able to get my hands on some of the hand-drawn graph paper maps that our DM had made for us back then. And, and uh, also the, uh, the area keys that tells you what's in each room. And, you know, it was just crazy, insane, funhouse dungeon type stuff. It, it wasn't... It wasn't anything with any over arc sweeping meanings or part of a grand scheme. It was, it was really all of us discovering it together for the first time. And I think our, our dungeon master at the time had only just recently got into it. And well, it sounds was, like given your age, I mean, it was kind of hitting you guys where you were living. I mean, I know when I was around that age playing that, you know, combat was everything and encountering all those new monsters and, I mean, the, the plot didn't really matter as much back then. Yeah, no, there, there was nothing. Not, there was no plot. <laughs> there was, here's the dungeon. You know, there's treasure in there somewhere. You know, you want to go in there and get the treasure and you want to try not to die before you get the treasure. And so that was all we needed to know as seven-year-olds. Um, and that was fine. But um, boy, oh boy, how the hobby has changed since then. <laughs> Um, I think for you too, Lou, not just for me, for all of us, I think um, we've, we've certainly evolved and grown up a bit uh, to the point where we have come to now expect a bit more than that from our adventure sessions. And we expect more than just that from our dungeon masters now. And uh, it's not so easy to be a DM. It's, it's easier to be a player, I think, um, of course, if you're if you're going to be the DM, there's a fair amount of prep that goes into it, and um, you have to avoid things like burnout and writer's block, and it's tough. And some days are tougher than others, and some days are easier than others, and that's just life. Now, jumping through time to the previous interview that I didn't didn't quite capture, um, you you come a crossed in there uh, with a fairly firm statement that, that you feel like finding this hobby really kind of saved you kind of put you on a, a whole nother path than your life trajectory had you going down at the time that's true i owe a large debt of gratitude to first edition AD&D for helping me to escape from the dead end of juvenile delinquency i was um i was at a crossroads at a as a young kid um I guess you could say I wasn't getting as much discipline at home as I probably should have been getting from both of my parents. And um, so I could have just as easily fallen in, fallen in with some pretty bad crowds and troublemakers. And to, a, to an extent I did, but first edition AD&D, I think really rescued me from that. In addition to Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts, I also, Oh, a debt of gratitude to, to that as well. Um, and my school teachers. I mean, I had some great school teachers and I have great high school memories. Um, grade school, not so much, but high school, definitely. And a lot of folks were pulling for me and they were in my corner. And first edition AD&D helped me a lot because it kept me off the streets, number one. Number two, it helped to teach me about math. It helped to teach me about social skills and teamwork and problem solving and just all of the things that 
that happens when you're in a tabletop role-playing game situation and when everybody is trying to work as a team together against the DM. Ha-ha, good luck with that. <laughs> um, more more uh, trying to work together as a team with themselves, for themselves, not so much against the DM. I, I just make yeah. a joke when I say that. But um, I am very grateful for first edition AD&D for having been there at that point in my life when I really needed something to, to get me on the path um, towards being a, I don't know, I don't know if I'm a model citizen these days, but I'm certainly, <laughs> um, certainly uh, in a better place than I would have been without the first edition of D&D. So I always try to do my part to, to repay that debt, you know, to show my gratitude for it, to, to help celebrate it, to help commemorate it. Anytime there's a, a major anniversary that rolls around, for instance, in the year 2019, that was the uh, that was the 40th anniversary of the Dungeon Master's Guide, and so we devoted the entire year of gaming to the DMG that year. Um, and then the following year, we did something similar. In 2020, we were celebrating Deities and Demigods all year long. And then in 2021, it was the 40th anniversary of Fiend Folio. So I made sure I made sure as a DM to sprinkle quite a few of those monsters from that book into our sandbox adventures when I was DMing. So there's always a great way to have fun with the hobby that that transcends the hobby itself. It doesn't just have to be about getting together with friends and having fun and the beer and pretzels approach. But not that there's anything wrong with that either. There's really no wrong way here. But mm -hmm. the way that I've chosen and the path that we take at Benchleydale Academy is a very celebratory path and a commemorative path, always remembering where we came from. I came from first edition AD&D. I didn't come from basic or any of the other role-playing games that were out at the time. I was playing Traveler for a little bit. I was playing GURPS for a little bit. And uh, full disclosure, even in the 1990s, I was trying second edition for a little bit just because it was the new and shiny thing. Mm -hmm. And I really was quite enamored with the Planescape campaign setting and all of those box sets and all of those books. Um, just the Planescape campaign setting alone, I think, had something like three or four setting, times right? as many yeah. books as first edition did. It just was incredible to see the, the large carbon footprint being made by some of these later editions. In a way, it turned me off to trying later editions because with first edition, all you need is a few books and that's it. Uh, whereas with these other editions, I think if you, if, if you want to feel like you're really doing it the right way, you're going to have to invest in a whole lot of shelf space for yourself <laughs> um, and among other things too. Um, but uh, anyway, one of the cool things that second edition taught me was how much I missed first edition. <laughs> so I'm grateful to second edition and the second edition years of TSR hobbies. Um, some of my favorite things, by the way, from out of that decade of, of second edition, which was 1990 until 2000, um, 
I really love that TSR published a four-volume set called the Encyclopedia Magica. Magica. Great books with a with a retail value at the time of $25 a piece. For a hundred bucks, you could get the whole encyclopedia. And that that was that was uh, magic items, right? Yes. Uh, yes, the Encyclopedia Magica contained A to Z, every magical item that ever appeared in a first edition book or Dragon Magazine or second edition or White Dwarf Magazine, or I think it even included magic items from the Polyhedron Newsine. Uh-huh, from the RPG, and yeah. If you were lucky enough to be one of the folks who attended gaming cons, that wasn't me. But if you were lucky enough to do that, then you were able to see the Polyhedron Newsine, I think, which often appeared at cons. But I never remember seeing Polyhedron on sale at the local hobby shops that yeah, I would go to in town near I, me. I actually subscribed to it, and I think the only way you could get it is by being a member of the RPGA at the time. That's the right. Playing Gamers Association. That's and, right. And, and it was it was a weird publishing schedule too. I, I want to say it, it was like every third month or something like that, or maybe maybe it was quarterly. I don't know, but it was. I remember as a kid just never being real sure when I was going to get the next one. Yeah, I think they had a pretty loose publishing schedule at the time, and. Um, I was fortunate to uh, to come into a bunch of uh, uh, PDFs of Polyhedron. I think I have all of them now. And they just stay safely tucked away on a hard drive where <laughs> from time to time I'll pop one open and do a crossword puzzle. I love the crossword puzzles. <laughs> in that. Um, and sometimes I will take a look at the, um, at the, the quizzes and the different kinds of word jumbles and puzzles that they would include in that. It wasn't just crosswords. It was other kinds of puzzles that you could do and enjoy, which uh, if you were playing D&D at the time, it was great fun. And it's still great fun today. Um, I would say that the Polyhedron publication has aged well. Even though it's been out of print forever, um, you can just pick up any old random back issue of it and these days flip through it and find all sorts of interesting stuff. Um, even if you're a DM that's just looking to add some interesting new potions to your adventures and you're not sure what to add, well, you could look in a magazine like Polyhedron and find that. Or White Dwarf or Dungeon um, and Imagine Magazine, which was another big one. That was a, a British publication, I think. So not very well known in the States, but Imagine was the other big one i think so the mount rushmore of gaming magazines for us dnd players back in the day was dragon white dwarf polyhedron imagine i would include dungeon magazine but you can only really have four on a mount rushmore <laughs> and and let's be honest dungeon magazine didn't roll around until 1988 or 89 which was the twilight of first edition anyway so I don't really associate Dungeon Magazine with being a first edition thing too much, although it is very much a second edition thing. And, you know, if you're really into second edition, it's easy to play first edition. It might as well be the same thing. Yeah, It's just, you know, with second edition, the spells are a lot more classified and categorized and initiative is handled differently. And there are some differences, but first edition is um, where it's at for me today with the celebrations and the commemorations always ongoing. Um, and even if folks who are out there listening to this old Dungeon podcast right now have never tried first edition AD&D, 
don't worry, there's hope for you yet. <laughs> um, you know, time is on our side. You're still young. So even if you don't join us at Ben Schlittel Academy and enjoy it with us, with our style, then that's fine. You can certainly find many DMs out there who are willing to DM first edition these days. Even though it seems like there are fewer and fewer of us, there are still plenty of us out there. So uh, good luck finding a, a DM that DMs first edition if you haven't found one yet. <laughs> it's not getting any easier, huh? Um, take us back a moment. Uh, so, you, you, you know, I think you said it was second grade, you're, you're introduced, you're playing. At what point do you take over as the game master? And then do you ever, do you ever really get a chance to leave that role? I mean, I, it sounds to me like nowadays you're pretty solidly the game master. Um, I think it's, it's fun when people refer to me as a game master, and I never, I never really think of myself as that. I'll give you one guess why that is. The, the, the word master is a little shy of that? or No, no, no. no? Um, I am a dungeon master. And I say Dungeon Master uh, exclusively only because okay. I referee first edition AD&D. I do not GM other systems or other editions or anything, really. And I suppose if I, if I DM'd second or third or fourth or fifth, uh, I would still be considered a Dungeon, dungeon Master. But um, as far as me first becoming a Dungeon Master, that happened in 1981. That was a big year for me when I finally got enough courage to try being a dm i was 10 years old and that christmas december of of 81 now i had already been dming first edition all year long but december of 81 my parents bought for me for christmas the basic moldve set that tsr had published with the really cool errol otis artwork on the mm -hmm. cover now <clears throat> i was very happy to get that mostly because of the art. I wasn't DMing basic and I had really no interest in DMing basic. And my parents, they meant well, but they didn't know any better, quite frankly. And um, so that began an education for me in terms of realizing that there's more than one way to approach the hobby. I can, you know, just continue on my first edition path. I can go to the basic path. Which path should I choose? So it became stick with first edition path and use the basic path as something just to study and have it be a resource and just to develop more of an understanding for myself, I guess, that there is this other way, the basic way, which I guess is intended more for younger players. And I was pretty darn young at the time. And, <laughs> and I had already developed such a strong taste for first edition that by the time I was given basic, it it, it mostly just collected dust, quite frankly, but I did use it from time to time to, at the very least, educate myself on how basic worked, so that if I wanted to have somebody role play a dwarf as a playable class, I know, right, <laughs> then I could use basic. Um, but that never really went far, other than just being more, uh, more for me than a teaching tool. I love teaching tools. It's important that we learn and that we grow as individuals. And it's important that we find out what we want from the hobby, whether it's exploring different editions, different systems, tasting every little thing. If that's what you want, good, go for it. You can do that. And you can also spend some time swimming in the deep end of the pool, which is staying with one edition for decades, which is what I've done. 
Now, <clears throat> this reminds me that, uh, Lou, we were talking about OSR the other day. And, oh, yeah. And I, I just remembered that um, <clears throat> somebody pulled me into a conversation about OSR <laughs> and said, you know, um, you, you identify as OSR, right? This is what they say to me. I said, well, no, not really. I mean, I love OSR and I love what it stands for and everything. I, I, I see it as both a mindset and I see it also as a movement. And I, I, I think it, I, and I could be wrong, but I think it, it has its origins as a backlash to third edition. People weren't liking the direction that Hasbro or Wizards of the Coast or whoever was taking this in, meaning the mainstream D&D. &D. Mm. And so OSR became a thing. People all of a sudden wanted to enjoy an, an old school revival, or old school renaissance. I don't, I don't know what else the R could stand for in that. I'm sure <laughs> it stands for other things too. But I'm not OSR if I never left first edition, am I? Because I think OSR is really something that that signals a return to uh -huh. old ways and so um i've had this discussion with some friends of mine and they said to me well tim if you're not osr then you must be either os or og and so <laughs> okay well i guess so i mean if if we have to put labels on things then i guess we do but um but we we really don't have to put labels yeah. on things um, just, uh, you know, enjoy what you do and, and be your most authentic self. That's really the best, the best thing that you can do for yourself in any situation. Be true to yourself, be who you are, understand where you came from. And that's how you can have a pretty good idea of, of where you're headed. Now, I've been exploring these new frontiers of first edition for decades and I've discovered all sorts of wonderful ways to approach it. And I keep finding new ways to have fun with it. If, if it was a forest, it would be a conifer, evergreen forest, just stretching for hills, for miles, as far as the eye can see. That's how I see first edition AD&D. It's evergreen. It never loses its taste, never loses its style. It doesn't go out of fashion. It's just always going to be there. The books are still going to be the books and the players are still going to be the players and everything else that changes is is what we decide to add to it along the way and we're always adding things and our approach to it as players these days is to treat it more as a hobby not so much a game i know people like to refer to themselves as gamers oh you know we're gamers but okay well i think in in Benchaladale Academy, yes, it's a role-playing game, and I get that, but for us, it's the RPG hobby. Whether we're painting miniatures or drawing maps or having world-building collaborations or having character creation workshops or whatever it is that we do, it's always the constructive making of something, that, and that's what I associate uh, with being a hobby. Mm -hmm. People can tell you that, you know, riding a bicycle is a hobby, going camping is a hobby. Yes, that's true. Those things aren't necessarily constructive in this context. But for us, it's it's more of a hobby than it is a game, I guess you could say. And and uh, the players that, that we've been able to attract to our tables are whew, some of the most creative people <laughs> that I have ever had the pleasure of meeting, whether they're painters or illustrators or wordsmiths and poets and writers and you know whether they do writing for a living or whether they do art for a living we have all these 
people with us here. And I also uh, really appreciate that, that we can set the time aside for it in a way where it doesn't burn me out, doesn't burn us out. I DM only once every third week. That's it. I used to do every week. I can't do that anymore. I used to do it multiple times a week. I will never return to that. I used to do stuff on weeknights. Now my weeknights are sacred downtime for me. My weekends, I am the true weekend warrior when it comes to the hobby. I'll set time aside on the mornings and the afternoons, on Saturdays and Sundays, whether it's for DMing or... Uh, let's see, Bench Ludale Academy has a virtual cocktail hour today that starts at one o'clock p.m. Eastern time. So sometimes we do that too. It's a nice little mixer. Everybody gets a chance to meet each other and and uh, discover, you know, what the other personalities are like that you might be running into if you're going to be at adventure sessions for which I'm a DM. And so we learn how to appreciate the hobby and and how to celebrate and commemorate first edition in such a way where it doesn't it doesn't come across as you know this is the only one true way because it's not and millions of people if not billions well not billions but millions of people who are out there in the world playing dnd <clears throat> i'm sure have never played first edition and that's okay because it's it's 2022 for crying out loud first edition dnd stopped being a thing in 1989 and if you weren't playing first edition before 1989, the chances are that you're not playing it today. Yeah, there's not a lot pointing you backwards uh, other than organizations no. like yours that, that you know are, are still bearing the torch for others to kind of explore. It's 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 becoming a dead language. I think we are one, maybe two generations away now, Lou, from seeing first edition be a forgotten thing altogether. And uh, but there's a lot about it that's worth remembering and learning from. And um, my roots are with it. I have a lot of friends whose roots are still with it. And there is still a big enough crowd out there today where you can talk about first edition AD&D with other role playing gamers and and they won't look at you like you're a crazy man or like you've got <laughs> four heads um i think they'll understand and, and some of the younger players today who uh really only know fifth edition and i don't hold that against them i mean they're 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 younger players you know this is what's happening now mm -hmm. so uh, we see some of them sometimes develop a, an interest in wanting to explore the older roots of the hobby which is cool you know it's nice to see that curiosity especially when it comes from a place of, well, I just want to learn. I want to see what it's about. You know, maybe it's something that I'd like. Okay, great. I think that's a perfectly healthy reason to go exploring first edition. If you've been exclusively enjoying more current editions of the D&D game, um, you know, there's, there's all sorts of reasons to want to go back and, and look at the old ways. You know, um, I think... One of my favorite things about first edition is that it never insults my intelligence and it always sends me to the dictionary, even today. <laughs> my God, I was just looking at a description of uh, magic items in the Dungeon Master's Guide. That would be this book right here. Uh, uh, Freddy on the cover at, and all that. Nice. Yeah, those, uh, the, the, 
the language that Gygax used when he wrote those books was was very advanced, just like the edition itself was advanced. The the, the vocabulary that he would use was advanced, and um, he, he still sends me to the dictionary sometimes. Thank you for that, Gary, because <laughs> um, my brain is uh, is a little bit bigger than it would have been otherwise. Um, you know, and that's not to uh, that's not anything to sneeze at. There, there's always something to be said for learning mm -hmm. and growing and just evolving as people and challenging ourselves and getting away from the comfort zone and, you know, just becoming a, just becoming a more well-rounded individual. I guess I think first edition AB&B is a pretty good path down that road, wouldn't you say? Oh, for sure. Um I mean, you, you, you've set the bait really well for our listeners. Now, now we got to tell them, you know, more about the Academy, how it got its start and, and if they're interested, how to kind of pursue this, because this isn't something for everyone. And it's not open for just anyone to, to just jump right into uh, for good reason. So you mind talking on that a little bit? Sure. I don't mind at all. Um, prior to 2020 was when the Academy began and it started when some of my players from New York reached out to me. I live in Nevada these days. And since I left Nevada in 2018, there had been no, really no hope, I think, for, for my players back in New York to reconnect with me and continue on with adventures in the Bench Liddell Sandbox. They reached out to me and said, you know, hey, why don't we try this Zoom platform <laughs> and see how it works. Um, we don't want to do Roll20 or, or Fantasy Grounds or Discord or any of the other stuff that's just played out, quite frankly. We, we wanted to try something a little different because we had always been a little bit different anyway. And so Zoom uh, worked out great for us. We started with... Um, well, there were there were less than 10 of us when we started in March of 2020. And then we had 25 and then we had 50 and it kept growing. And this year we celebrated our, our second anniversary of the Academy. And now we have more than a thousand members, which is Holy amazing. Smokes. I can't even believe it, but that's that's what it is now. Um, also, the the Academy is um, is a special place um, which was created by open-minded adults for open-minded adults. And it's not really a place for anyone under the age of 18. There are lots of adult situations that pop up in our games. Um, <clears throat> nothing approaching some of the tastelessness that we see in the hobby these days um, and I'm not going to name names, but it's out there. There is some stuff that you probably might want to avoid in the hobby. Um, just a word to the wise there. But Benchleydale Academy is um, uh, a place that celebrates and commemorates first edition AD&D. Uh, and the, the first edition AD&D years were 1977 to 1989. And in our adventures, there's a lot of tongue in cheek pop culture references, lots of Monty Python, lots of <laughs> anything that really could be encapsulated in those years. So anything from 1977 to 1989 might find its way into our adventures somehow, such as 
Smokey and the Bandit, such as the Blues Brothers. I mean, the list goes on and on. <laughs> and every little thing you can think of pop culture wise from those years might pop up in our adventures from time to time. Now, there are, I think, more than 10 Dungeon Masters at the Academy now. It used to be just me. But now there's a whole bunch of us running adventures and each DM has his or her own style. And they handle character creation differently. They handle initiative differently. They handle everything differently, although there are some similarities, of course. Um, but you can join one of DM Charlie's games or one of DM David's games, one of DM Michelle's games, and you can experience different flavors of, of how Dungeon Masters can interpret and run first edition A, B, and D system. All right, I, I got to pause you because I got to go fishing for a soundbite that was just, uh, I love the soundbite from the interview that, that didn't make it. Um, so we're talking about rules here, first edition rules uh, and the way that they're interpreted or used differently amongst people. Rules. Do you mind uh, what, what the, the books that make up AD&D, you'd mentioned that they're not rule books. Well, go the, now that this is this? true. Yeah. Um, uh, you're, and you're right about that. The, uh, the player's handbook is not a rule book it's a handbook and it's filled with all sorts of wonderful suggestions on what you can do same goes for the dungeon master's guide which is a guidebook not a rule book and so of course the dungeon master's guide will also guide not just dungeon masters but players as well on how to develop a, a greater understanding of what you can do with the hobby there's a term that gets thrown around the hobby sometimes, rules as written. We call it raw. Sometimes people will say BTB, meaning by the book. And there are lots of players out there who are quick to turn up their noses if a session is not rules as written or by the book. And if that's what they want to do with their noses, then good. Good for them. Whatever makes them happy. Um, I do not dungeon master the hobby as if it was rules as written. However, there are many times when we will refer to something that appears in Player's Handbook or Dungeon Master's Guide, you know, and I might say, okay, Lou, turn to page 123 of the Player's Handbook and take a look at what it says there for how much you're going to have to pay for leather armor and how much you're going to have to pay for a shield. Or I might say, turn to page 79 of Dungeon Master's Guide if you want to look at saving throws. Or I might say, turn to page number 74 of the Dungeon Master's Guide if you want to look at the two-hit combat matrices. <laughs> um, it's important to understand some of the game mechanics, I think, if you have a good understanding of how to use the two-hit combat tables on page 74 of the DMG or the inside of your DM screen, if you're looking at it that way. It's important to develop understandings of that and also of saving throws. And it's important to understand how time works in the game. It's important to understand the passage of time, segments, rounds, turns, hours, days, it all blends together. <laughs> and it helps to create a more immersive experience for your players, making it more rewarding, not only for them, but, but also for myself as a DM and yourselves as a DM too. So it's, it's nice to keep track of time and it's nice to involve the players with different responsibilities. One might be the caller, 
one might be the mapper and so on, so that the DM doesn't have to feel overburdened with, with doing everything. You don't have to do everything. And in fact, players would, I think, more often than not, appreciate being given an additional responsibility at the table, uh, in addition to killing monsters and <laughs> finding treasure and so forth. But that aesthetic is, is really a, you know, you see it very thick in the first edition of the game that, you know, here are some rules, but you're going to make rulings. And if, if you, you know, if you want to go back to the guidebook, if you want to go back to the handbook, it's there. But the, the right. game has had that feel back then that, oh, the, the dungeon master is going to tell you how it's going to be. And we're going to play with inside that, you know, that, that confine of, or construction of the game. Yeah. You're right. And one thing that surprises me about that is when I was a kid and I was becoming a dungeon master for the first time, there were lots of other dungeon masters in my neighborhood. And they had their own little cliques, their own little circles of friends that they more or less kept in a bubble to themselves. And I always had this rather fanciful notion that there might be other dungeon masters around town in my neighborhood who might want to take me under their wing a little bit, show me the ropes a little bit, you know, maybe show uh -huh. me some ticks. I'm sorry, uh, tips and tricks, maybe some do's and don'ts, you know, uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll compare ideas and they'll give me some constructive criticism. And, but there was none of that. <laughs> none of it. Not a single drop. So that by the time I had reached adulthood, all of my hopes and dreams of, of finding this, this sort of secret society of dungeon masters that got together and compared notes with each other, and it was all very congenial, that taught me a little something about life. And as I've grown into adulthood and I've had a chance to meet lots of other dungeon masters along the way and other players and other, other gaming groups, I've had a chance to see how they operate. And I've put it out there and I've let it be known that, you know, I, I'm willing to, to be one of those dungeon masters that, that enjoys the unity aspect of, of the gaming community, right? Because community is unity, right? With COMM in front of it, but unity. So I began to wonder, where's the unity? I certainly wasn't seeing it. And these days, I still don't see much of it. And but that's all right, I guess. I mean, had I gotten what I wanted, maybe I would have found out that it that it, it wasn't all that I had hoped that it would be, I guess. Uh, that's that's a half empty glass way of looking at it, I suppose. <laughs> but um, but I do sometimes wonder how different my approach to the hobby might have been had I been allowed to allow other outside influences, meaning other DMs, mm. to to shape and develop my understanding of the craft of becoming a dungeon master. But because I didn't have that, I was left to my own devices uh, over the years to develop my own style and to determine for my own self what was right and wrong, what, what was acceptable for me to take from other systems. If I liked something from Iron Crown Enterprises, for example, who used to publish the Rollmaster books. If I like some Rollmaster critical hit tables, yeah. if I like that and I want to bring that into my first edition AD&D adventures, then I'm going to do that. I mean, nobody's going to tell me I can't. I certainly can, 
does it make me a pariah or a loose cannon? Well, I guess so. And if you're even concerned about those things, but um, I was just a DM trying to find his own way without any help from other DMs and um, not including my first DM when I was just a player before I became a DM. I learned a lot from him. <clears throat> so I did have that at least. But even if I hadn't had that, I think I still would have been largely on my own with my journey. But that's okay, because looking back on it all now, I, I guess I wouldn't really change anything, even though I, I wanted there to be more collaboration when I was younger, more mm -hmm. collaboration with other DMs. I've developed a, a perspective now, being older and being closer in age to 70 than I am to 30 now. It gives you the perspective of knowing that, you know, everything that happened along the way, I, I don't want to say the cliche of, well, it happened for a reason, because I don't buy into that. But I will say that everything that happened along the way certainly contributed towards making me what I am today as far as being a dungeon master goes. And, um, and that's all right. You know, I'm, I am... I am what I am, and that's all that I am. And yes, Popeye would say that, but, but I'm going to say it too. First edition AD&D has been my spinach. So eventually Dale Academy uh, takes place in a, in kind of a, uh, trying to give the best way, to, like an amalgam world of pretty much all the first edition AD&D modules. And then uh, I think you, you've even got some of the Judges Guild stuff in there. And, and you tell us a little bit about that world that, that you That's right. explore. When the, when the Benchleydale, when the Benchleydale Sandbox was first created, uh, I want to say right around 2007, I think it was, the idea was for it to be a place in which we could run the against the Giants modules. So G1, G2, and G3. We would have one large map measuring... 170 miles by 140 miles. And I'm not sure how many square miles that comes out to, but it's a lot. Yeah. And so we would have that one map just be for G1. Okay, here's the Hill Giant Fortress and here's everything else that surrounds it. Stuff we created on our own, some stuff taken from actual published adventure modules and whatnot from the, the first edition years. So we would have stuff from... Judges Guild, and we would have stuff from TSR Hobbies and Adventure Modules and different places of interest from Dragon Magazine. And we would take a little bit from Dungeon Magazine also and White Dwarf and Imagine and Polyhedron and all of these wonderful resources that were at our fingertips and were not doing anything. So we decided to do something with them and put them to good use creatively making the sandbox where people can jump in, go fight against the giants. And, and oh, by the way, while you're fighting giants, why not make a pit stop here or make a side quest here? Or before you know it, you've got this living, living campaign, almost like what used to happen with the RPGA back at the conventions in the old days, where there was this living world of Greyhawk campaign going on. And you could go from one gaming convention to the next, to the next, and bring your character sheet with you and still continue on and accumulate experience points through different conventions. And it was a wonderful idea. And I, I get why it fell apart, but that's, a, but that's a sad story for another time. 
Right now, we're just talking about happy stories and <laughs> the happy story that is potentially our sandbox. Yeah. Um, Luke Gygax and myself co-created the sandbox and it went from being just the one map to being three maps. It was one map for hill giants, one map for frost giants, and one map for fire giants, right? It, it kept expanding. Before we knew it, we had 11 or 12 maps. I think I've lost count. And each one measures 170 by 140. So you're looking at hundreds of thousands of square miles of adventure area where you can jump into and explore a lot of the old adventure modules and even just some of the old places of interest from the adventure modules. You might remember the original Dragonlance modules. Yeah. They came out in the mid-1980s and they were given the prefix of DL. So you could play DL1, DL2, and so forth, all the way on up until I think, oh my goodness, I think it ran as far as DL15. In the 80s, when I was DMing, I, I remember I DMed DL1 all the way through to DL11 or 12. And, um, and then... And then we stopped. I think by that point, I had been getting involved with other stuff. I was uh, discovering girls. I was discovering sports. I was discovering music. <laughs> it was the music discovery that changed my life, I think, more than any other thing. But point being, um, yes, by the time the mid-1980s rolled around, I, I think I had put first edition uh, uh, on the back on the shelf for a little while. But I, I was doing the, the Dragonlance modules, and I remembered always really enjoying some of those, the dungeons and some of the dragon's lairs that were in those modules. And maybe I didn't care so much for the overarching story. No. I never bothered. I never read the Dragonlance books or the novels. Didn't want to bother with it. I still never have. That's not to say that they aren't great books. They, they have lots of fans, those books do. But when I was yeah, DMing the, the modules, Sutherland maps, right? The, yeah, those Sutherland maps of the different. Like I remember dragons. What is it? Dragons of Despair is that number four with the floating tomb of the dragons. Such a great mm, piece of kiss. cover art. Yeah, very and just the concept and that the way that maps layered in there is very similar to like a Ravenloft where it's yeah. just got that like real world feel to it. It doesn't feel like all geometric and boxy, but yeah. right. It's almost three-dimensional. They call, they call it isometric. Uh -huh. And that's what it is. Uh, and, and these days, if you want, you can even buy graph paper that's isometric, which is wonderful. Uh -huh. um, one of our map makers at the Academy, Jeff McKay, he likes to use isometric graph paper. Hi, Jeff, if you're listening out there. <laughs> um, and uh, but so the Dragonlance modules, I loved, I loved a lot of them. And um <clears throat> So for the Bench of the Death Sandbox, we wanted to take a few of the different dragons layers, just the layers, extract them from the Dragonlance modules and put them into our sandbox and graft them onto the sandbox so that we're, we're helping to keep Dragonlance alive in our own special way, just by taking a place of interest from an adventure module, having it be in our sandbox. Now it might be 500 miles or a thousand miles away from wherever, wherever your player character is, but that's fine. It doesn't mean that you can't someday take an adventure to that part of the sandbox and, and deal with whatever's at that place of interest. So <clears throat> that's a bit about what we're doing at the sandbox now. And there are, there are entire sections of the sandbox, by the way, which are locked. 
and they will remain locked until your player character reaches level 10 or 11. One, it's just very dangerous adventuring for higher levels, um, <clears throat> areas and places of interest that come from some of the more dangerous adventure modules and so forth. Um, but it's, it's fun having that portion of the sandbox be locked, knowing that someday someone might unlock it or a group of adventurers might reach high enough level where they can go to get there. All that, yeah. Maybe, but... Uh, you never know. But until then, the Temple of Demogorgon will have to remain <laughs> locked. Um, and until then, Nat 20's Murder Castle will also have to remain locked. I'm sorry to say it, but that's okay. These are these are goals, and it's good to have goals, right? Mm -hmm. You need goals as adventurers. You got to level up so you can get to the danger lands. We call it the danger lands. One of and the discussions that by the time this is edited will be afterwards uh, that we had about the first edition rule sets is a debate about um, minimum ability scores to be like paladins and, you know, these special classes. And, uh, and that, that idea of earning something, of, of getting into something that, you know, you, you just couldn't choose, but, you know, you had to get in the right situation and how rewarding that feels and how exciting it is to, to you know, achieve something that, you know, isn't just a choice, but, you know, it's kind of like it found you. Um, uh, yeah, that, that's got something to it. It's got an appeal to it that I think we, we miss a lot of times nowadays in gaming. Do we miss it a lot of times these days? I guess. I wouldn't know, really. I'm going to take your yeah. word for it, Lou, because I'm <laughs> much outside of first edition. So I, I know you're, you're, our time together here is coming to an end here. Uh, so um, I'm a listener. I, I'm super interested in getting in on uh, Benchley Dale Academy. What path do I need to go down and, and what's it like to become involved here? To find us and to become a part of it yeah. is your first challenge. Because Benchleyvale Academy is a private Facebook group and uh, we keep it as a secret society. If you are in the academy already, you can extend an invite to someone on Facebook who is a friend of yours that you feel might be interested in, in coming to check it out. And they can come in that way. And um, if or if you're a friend of mine on Facebook and you send me a private message and say, hey, Tim, I'm interested in in Benchledale Academy. How do I how do I get in? I, I can't find it anywhere. I would say to them, well, <clears throat> you're not going to find it anywhere. And um, we don't want people to be able to find it anywhere. We don't want to be just another just another D&D group. We are special with what we do. And uh, we are also very aware that it's for open-minded adults, by open-minded adults. And if you're under 18, you probably shouldn't be here. If you, uh, if you have a lot of hangups about things, whether they're politics or religion or society or whatever, and maybe this isn't the place for you, I don't know. Uh, but I can say that you're certainly more than welcome to come give it a try. If you find that you like it and you want to be a part of it and maybe win prizes in the cool contest that we have, <laughs> oh my God, so many contests. And if you want to jump in on any of the adventures, again, so many different adventures with different DMs. Maybe you want to be part of the academy just to just to lurk. Now, people like to use the word lurking as a as a dirty word, or you know, what or they'll say to you, why are you lurking when you could participate and and be a part of it and collaborate with us right well 
uh, the fact is some people are just really shy and some people are insecure and just maybe not as far along on that path of, of development where they're comfortable yet uh, with their own uh, confidence levels, maybe their own self-esteem, what have you. I don't know how, how you want to say it, but um, maybe they're just not quite there yet in terms of, of being open. Maybe they're just very introverted by nature. Whatever the case may be, they could still come to the academy and and uh, and enjoy the show. And by enjoying the show, I mean you can watch what happens with the contests, watch what happens with the game shows we run, like Benchleydale Squares. Um, congratulations to Chet Minton, by the way, our current Benchleydale Squares <laughs> champion. And um, you can also enjoy our other games, like Bottle That Genie or the gossip game or other games that we have happening at the Academy. It's not just first edition AD&D hobby and adventure sessions and character creation. There's <clears throat> lots of other stuff that happens. We also do combat simulations. Let's say you're new to first edition and you don't understand combat and how it works. Well, we do combat sims here too. So if you just want to put a character into a combat sim with us, now you're going to come out of it with a, a deep understanding of how combat is likely to work. Um, and I say likely to work because different DMs will handle mm -hmm. combat Nuances. differently, probably. And, and that's okay. You know, there's, <clears throat> there's no codified approach to it. Um, there's no wrong way to go about it. Um, unless nobody's having fun. If nobody's having fun, then you're doing it wrong. I'm sorry to say, <laughs> um, but to find the academy, you have to know someone that's already in. It's like, how do I join the Freemasons Guild? Similar situation. Although <clears throat> um, there's a lot less nonsense and a lot less um, controversy, I suppose, <laughs> associated with the academy. Um, the academy is a great place to come and meet people, even if you're just using it as a networking tool. If you want to meet artists and writers and publishers and all of those kinds of folks who could um, make your own stay in the hobby seem a bit more meaningful to you. Uh, you can accomplish that at Benchleydale Academy. And if you are a creator or a manufacturer or a publisher and you want to raise awareness of whatever it is that you are creating or manufacturing or publishing, you could send promotional samples to Benchleydale Academy and we feature the samples as contest prizes that we award to the winners of our contests. And what are what kinds of contests do we have? Well, they're not just, okay, everybody uh, just enter your name and we'll pick a number out of a hat. No, um, our contests are going to be creative writing contests to uh, help you to flex those creative writing muscles <laughs> because we've all got them. Whether or not we use them, that's really up to us. Whether or not we feel inspired enough to use them, that's up to us. Are we putting ourselves in the right kinds of atmosphere to be inspired? Well, maybe not always, but at Benchleydale Academy, you can say yes, always, because there's always going to be something that inspires you here. And you might even inspire others. And if you do, that's great. As a dungeon master, I rely on inspiration that comes not just from my own background and my own ideas, but also from ideas of everyone at the table when I'm DMing. A lot of the improv theater that happens, it just 
inspires so many other things that can snowball and become larger and bigger things later on. Um, so to find Ben Schlidale Academy, you must first find someone that is already in. When you find someone that's already in, ask them to send you an invite so you can come in. Now, um, we don't just allow any old riffraff to come <laughs> into this group. We have something called the Banhammer. The Banhammer is my friend and your friend too, because we try not to have the malcontent people. We try not to have complainers or rules lawyers, etc. Rules gurus are different. I love the rules guru. In fact, I'm sometimes a rules guru myself. But rules lawyers, there's no home for them here. And people who are going to be finding little ways to complain or, or throw pity parties for themselves is just not what we're about here. The people who are always going to take advantage of every little minute to talk about gaming cons or constantly be plugging their stuff and just have that really be all that they're about. And no, we don't have that here. I think you'll find that the, the atmosphere that we have created and, and cultivated at the Academy is a, a great atmosphere. There's very little, if any, negativity. There's no drama. We don't tolerate it. And there's a lot of, of respect, people showing respect towards one another. Um, there's very little posting of memes at Benchledale Academy. <laughs> In fact, um, we try to be better than the God knows how many other D&D groups there are on social media where they just allow people to post memes willy-nilly and it's okay and it's and it's ha-ha and it's people writing comments that are a mile long okay if, you, if that's what you want go and enjoy that but we don't do that here here we're trying to be a bit better than that um and i'm not going to sit here and say my god we're a thousand times better than that we're just trying to be a bit better and every every little bit helps when when you can take a step in a direction that's a bit more inclusive and immersive and appreciative and yes celebratory and commemorative that's why we're here we're not here to frown upon fifth edition we're not here to talk smack about other stuff we're just here to celebrate and commemorate and appreciate what we had been given at one time once upon a time and which we still have even though we may not have been given it lately we were given it and we still have it to use it and and uh, do things with it that's up to us now you know it's on us to to keep it alive it's worth keeping alive it's worth celebrating and it's worth commemorating and yes there's a scary devil or demon on the cover of the dm <laughs> diet oh no i'm here to tell you folks that anytime you can expand and broaden your horizons and let yourself grow a little bit of a thicker skin. That's a good thing in life, right? Because from adversity comes strength, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So don't whine and complain and moan about when things are going wrong sometimes. Think of it, adver think of it as adversity, the, the kind of adversity from which you will emerge a stronger person from. And think of first edition AD&D as the kind of hobby that you will emerge a stronger more well-versed hobbyist from with a better vocabulary too, mind you. Um, so I think that is probably um, the best I can say about Ben Schlittel Academy, where to find it, what to expect, when you'll get there. 
And uh, as for what else you might expect when you get there, well, you'll just have to see for yourself, <laughs> unless you're already there. In that case, uh, and, or in which case, I will see you there. Um, and uh, we are about to, uh, later today, um, actually in 15 minutes, I am going to be opening a Zoom session for the Benchleydale Bench Academy Virtual Cocktail Hour. Say that five times fast. Um, <laughs> Now, Lou, I know you probably have a busy day ahead, but even if you want to join us for 15, 20 minutes or whatever at the cocktail hour, you're welcome to, or join us for the entire hour. You'll get to meet some of the other folks at the academy, and you'll get to meet some of our players who role play S3 with us, and um, I'm sure they would love to to see you and, and meet you and say hello yeah. to you. You are certainly more than welcome. But yeah, If you drop me the link, I've got some, uh, some publishing stuff I got to get to today, but uh, okay. I can always throw that on and and participate in it while uh while getting some of the tedium done of that uh, job so appreciate it man well thank that you so much great. for doing this again with us uh you know i'm gonna try to get this edited up tonight hopefully uh tomorrow at some point it'll be actually dropped so really well done it, my man. friend well done <laughs> take care tim lou you have a great day man thank you you too yeah Oh, look, now we're being recorded. Now, now, now I clicked it. I did before. I don't know what happened. Oh, oh crap. Ola. I don't know. I guess. <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do. Oh, well. Um, geez. Yeah. I yeah, I don't know. But I guess we're, we'll just roll forward with our I plan to talk about first edition. And uh, so if you're just joining us, uh, we had a private conversation with Kim Connolly for the last hour. Uh as one does when they're doing a podcast. Uh, so we, uh, this is Lou Alou. I'm here with Edwin and Bill, and um, we're going to continue the conversation. Uh, you know, eventually Dell Academy celebrates all that is uh, first edition of AD&D, and uh, we were going to have a conversation now about that rule set. Uh, so, um, you know, I, unfortunately, you didn't, you, you listeners did not catch the bit where Tim had explained that, in large, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons uh, came as a result of Gary Gygax trying to separate out the IP uh, from Dave Arneson so that we could say that, hey, you know, he has full control of this. Uh, you know, all the monetary gain from it would, would be TSRs and, and not divided into Dave's category. And then there's also a lot of people that are in the camp that it also came as a result of. Uh, you know, wanting to have more tournament style rules, rules that are, you know, a little more, you know, down to the nuts and bolts as opposed to the, the BX and, and Beckme uh, rules. Um, that, that is a fair summary of it, guys. Well, one of the things I thought, uh, one of the things I thought was super interesting because it's something I, I have thought about a lot was his sort of personal connection to ADD as a, as game and his choice. So a long time ago, <laughs> I remember thinking that I'm either going to have lived in a place for a long time and have deep roots, or I'm going to live in a lot of places and you can't do both. Like there's, you just can't, there's not, you know, you're, and I think he has, he has obviously made the choice. And so it was interesting to hear about to put down deep roots. Like he, he, he is playing AD and D and he's exploring it and he's trying to you know get every last bit of 
of, of excitement out of it and nuance, different way of uh, using it. And that to me was a, it was, it was a refreshing thing to hear. It's sort of, you know, this is somebody who's going to explore uh, drawing with pencils for five years. They're not going to touch colors. They're not going to touch ink. They're just going to focus in on pencils. And I, I thought that was a neat, a neat, uh, it was neat to hear about. I enjoyed that. But I think that was also an important part of what he's sort of, and, and eventually the ale uh, is, is, is this going for some depth yeah, I think area. it was really interesting that, you know, I didn't know a lot about Benchdale Academy other than I knew they were a 1E group, but I think it was really interesting to hear, you know, kind of his take on on how they approach 1E is, is um, really just a game unto itself, really, and that, you know, we're going to we're gonna live in this little five-book, maybe six-book world um, and, and use the core three, obviously, and then, you know, he said maybe a little bit of, you know, uh, Diaz and Demigods, which is cool. Monster Mania 2, which is cool. Fiend Folio, which is not cool. But um, agree to disagree. Opinionated much? Them, but, you know, man, I, I got to have a little fun. But uh, I, I think it was fascinating, you know, to, you know, to, to hear that and how his group went from, you know, two years ago went from 25 people in the in the academy. Now they've got over a thousand with, you know, all kinds of uh, uh, people playing, and uh, they're, you know, they definitely are a niche within the one E niche, it's not even like they're, they're all encompassing of one E. I think they kind of play, you know, their, ver- you know, I'll say their version. We all play our own version of one. Yeah. Right. But you know, they have, but they don't, of- they don't do like the world of Greyhawk. They do eventually Dell Academy's world, which is a composite yes. of everything yeah. planned out in, in, you know, yeah. And even their map even, and everything. Yeah. Even his game style that he described a little bit, right. It's, it's significantly more role playing than dice rolling, which, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's an anachronism to AD and D. I mean, the game was created, you know, whether we want to all love it or not, um, I particularly do like it. But, you know, AD and D is a construct of a war game, which is based on rolling dice. And Hope you froze, Bill. He's back on the moon. <laughs> I'm going to, I'll jump in real quick. Uh, hopefully, I'll unlock here and then we'll have him repeat that. But, um, was I just thinking about the, uh, yeah, I found it interesting, you know, the way he stated that, uh, you know, there's, he's finding new things to explore with that system and new, new directions to take it. You know, it's just a very poetic thing, you know, to, you know, it's almost like, uh, almost like, you, you know, a, a relationship, you know, a spouse or whatever, you know, you, you stay married, you stay in love by finding those, those new things you never knew about that other person, you know, Hey Bill, Hey, uh, you locked up on us. <laughs> Not as much shit as we gave you. Yeah, I was gonna say we had a lot of fun with that one. <laughs> I'm not sure why that, and you know, I have to apologize for for a couple of weeks ago when I was actually driving to Florida, and um, I, I can always make a, 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 a you know a long story out of a short story. But I bought a new car last year, and it's a Nissan Pathfinder. It's a really nice car. The things got all the bells and whistles right, but for some reason, it doesn't come with Apple CarPlay. I I it, I, I was literally on the people want to consider this kind of a stupid i almost didn't buy it because of that and i'm like no i you know I, it, it's got the nissan stuff in it it should be all good all our other nissans have got carplay from our, we got a 17 we got two 18s you know they all have got carplay this one does not for a bizarre reason and it gave me more shit on that drive down to florida um about connecting and not connecting yeah I exactly 
it's it's crazy though. You you know, if I go to Bluetooth, it seemed to work okay. You know, but every time I if my phone was dying, I'm like, well, shit, I need to plug this in and power up. Well, I'd plug it in, and then it would start. You would get the feedback loop and and everything else under the sun. So I I do apologize for that. I you know, you probably could have caught me almost anywhere on that trip except that particular hundred mile stretch, and uh, and I wouldn't have had as many problems. But it was definitely giving me connecting problems for for some reason or another. But because uh, I did listen back to the, to the podcast, and Lou, you did a great job of uh, of taking care of it. So um, even though uh, I was giving you all kinds of headaches, I'm sure. Yeah, that was a big deal. Yeah, I, this tonight might actually be my fault. Uh, like I'm saying, I'm not in my wife's shoe closet tonight. I'm I'm actually on the Purdue University's campus. I'm helping out with a 4-H event tonight, and I'm kind of ditching it for an hour here to record. And uh, so I'm on campus Wi-Fi. I have no idea how good or bad that I was is. Gonna say, I, I, this time I know it's not me. All right, so let's uh, let's take you back. You're, you're making a statement that uh, AD&D is based on a war game, and you're working yeah, from there so when I, you could have. Well, well, certainly, right? I mean, D&D is based yeah. on a war game. It's based on chain mail. Chain mail so right. you know, we, we, we go back to the genealogical genealogy of, of D&D and it's, it's chain mail and then it's the the D&D you know o, we call it OD&D now box, box yeah. sets, right and then and then and then they did kind of a weird thing right they um uh they, they come up with a home set um essentially which by the way we're... listeners just I gotta put I gotta plug it while we're here yeah uh, do it next month uh Chris Holmes son of Eric Holmes will be on this old dungeon so stay tuned for that one go ahead and we're going to record it. <laughs> yes, you're yes. going to hear him. Not just <laughs> yes, us telling are. you about talking to him. Um, so, you know, they, they came out with the home set, and then they, they because they did want to have some sort of basic version of the game to kind of bring people in, right, bring novices in, because the od set was absolutely god-awful at doing that. Well, and, so, and Eric Holmes, Dr. Eric Holmes, he, he did that sort of on his own. I mean, like he, he approached own, Gary he approached and said, hey, why don't we? Why don't you let me do this for you? Because people sent him a manuscript and said, "Hey, yeah. I got a better idea." Yeah. So you know, they went with it, and you know, we got the home set, which is my introduction to the game. Um, and then out came, uh, and again, sorry, listeners, you missed some of this, but you know, Ben Tim kindly talked about how you know the, the rule books came out in the absolutely bizarre order, <laughs> and, and I remember it because I, you know, I'm old enough; I lived through it. The Monster Manual came out wacky. in December of 77, okay? Um, I, I had to look up the exact dates, but I, I remember they, there's a sequence. They came out in December of 77, so we got this cool Monster Manual, we're, but we're playing Holmes, so it really doesn't – it works, but it doesn't work kind of thing, but it was mm-hmm. cool because it just gives all this cool stuff. But um, we still had no hit charts greater than third level, right, based on the home side. You, you, you couldn't – you didn't know how anything did anything, Um so finally, you know, Player's Handbook comes out about six, seven months later. It came out in, in June of 78. Well, now we got the Player's Handbook. We still don't have saving throws, hit charts, experience charts, magic items, how to play the game, essentially, mm-hmm. in yeah. any book. <laughs> we, we still how don't know the character and spells and the no, equipment. We didn't, we, didn't get, yeah. we didn't get the DM guide till over a year later. The Dungeon Masters guide came out at Gen Con in 79 in August. So it's, uh, it's crazy. I mean, between, you know, monster, the, the monster menu coming out and, uh, the dungeon masters guy coming out, you, you have almost a two year stretch before you had the complete AD and D game available to you. And, you know, the, the reason for AD, the production of AD and D was, was a few things. I mean, I don't think it was any one. I think 
one of the reasons was they needed to fix the game. Okay. Cause you had, you had to take the, the little Brown books and make it an actual game. And you had to go well beyond what Holmes did with the, with the home set, which is a, a great version, by the way, the great fun box to pick up and play DD. But they needed to create, right? DD was blowing up. They needed to create their, their, their product to go with it. At the same time, you have this schism going on with Gary and, and Arneson. Um, Dave Arneson and, and Gary Gygax were not seeing eye to eye, as it were. And uh, as you, all things come about, money is always a part of all of that. So what better way to kind of fix that is to now call it Advanced Dungeons and Dragons instead of Dungeons and Dragons, because they needed to change the name of the rule set to get Arneson off the royalty tab, basically. Uh, that's just has to do with the name. I don't think it has anything to do with the actual game system. Um, but, you know, also, you know, Gary is, you know, up until, you know, before Sword Passage, always said the same thing. I mean, one of the, the reasons for AD&D to, to become the way first edition did was to codify rules because tournament play was a big thing back in the seventies. It was, it was huge. All the major turn, all the major conventions, the medium-sized conventions had AD&D or Dungeons Dragons tournaments in them. And they wanted to have a system in which they were all, everything was resolved the same way, even not just between conventions, but even within a convention between dungeon masters. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you had to have a set rule set where everything was the same. It was a, so it's fair for all the groups playing because again, it, it's a little hard for people to look at it today because tournaments in D&D are almost non-existent. I mean, just, there's not very many anywhere. I mean, yeah, a lot of them are throwbacks anyhow. They're all you they're know, old school right. we, tournaments. Exactly. Yeah. We run a throwback, basically money tournament every year at North Texas. You know, I know Paul Stormberg just started picking up and running a tournament uh, at, at GaryCon the last three mm -hmm. or four or five years. I can't remember how long, but, you know, but you, you get outside, there's not very many. But if you go back and just grab a bunch of programs from tournament or, uh, conventions back in the late 70s and early 80s, they're chock full of, of tournaments. Tournament play was a huge thing. Um, it can't be, it, honestly, I, I can't put that on a big enough pedestal to say how important it was to the hobby. Um, well, I think, I mean, like if you compare, if you look at uh, spell listings from, you know, the, the home set or, or what have you, I mean, you get through all the levels of spells. Well, granted, they didn't go, you know, all the levels up, but, but yeah. Magic Missile, for example, you know, that's, that's a paragraph. You look at AD and D. That's you know two paragraphs. You know, so oh, everything yeah. is dialed in a lot tighter uh, to let you know that this is what it can do, this is what it can't do. Uh, so yeah, oh, sure. You, yeah, everything was spelled out much greater detail, including range, duration, you know, uh, mechanics of the spell and spell components. All that became a larger part of the game. So you know, I, I, I want to separate a little bit. I think it's important to definitely separate the the Arnus and Gygax split. Was I don't think as much all about rules necessarily as it was that had to do with business. That was the business end of the game. And that's why, it be, that's why, honestly, that's why it was called advanced Dungeons and dragons. It wasn't because the game was advanced. It's because they had to come up with a new name. They were stuck. So that was the legal issue. Um, and you don't obviously have that issue anymore because now it's just back to Dungeons and Dragons. It's been that way for a while. So ever since 2E, you know, it's, You've got different ownership of, of the of the of the IP, and they don't need to call it advanced anymore. That's why that was shed back then. So, but with 30, 30 edition coming out, but 
I, I think, you know, to say 1E was purely a, a result of tournament play is, is also not fair because it's not. It was also, you know, the game needed – the game evolved, obviously. They broadened the horizons of the game immensely. Uh, you know, Tim was saying that, uh, you know, part of the, the thing that he loves or Ben Shadale loves about AD&D is it's, uh, you know, you've got a tight rule set, but there's still plenty of room to explore that rule set and explore that game system. Um, yeah, like I like how you pointed out, it's the Dungeon Master's guide, not rule book. Player's sure. handbook, not rule book. Yep. You know, yep. Parameters. And, and not, yeah. Look for for me, I love the idea of Benchdale, and then there's other parts of me that it it it's not necessarily my bag of tea. I'm a rules guy. I grew up playing war games before I played RPGs. I've I've you know I my mind is kind of trained more into rules are kind of important and that. I'm not a rules lawyer by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I am a little bit more, probably more rules is written than maybe a lot of other people. But uh, I think that I think is, is what is interesting is that he's chosen or maybe it shows him, but he's chosen a rules intense game with a ton of subsystems to play a style of gaming, which sounded very, open and loose and you know and you know he's talking about not looking at the rule books but of course that might just be that after you know 40 years you actually know the rules you don't have to bother looking at the rule books but but i think there's also um yeah i think there's some people who have sort of a, a mentality that the the rules are what is fun about a lot of role-playing games and exploring the mechanics of them and then other people who are very much into the uh, some of the storytelling and the, the dramatic aspects of it. And it's interesting to me that, um, I mean, it may not, it may just be a coincidence. In other words, that ad and is, is his first game, his first love. And the style of game that he likes is the style of gaming he likes. And they just happen to, you know, he has married them, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't like, if I had to choose from all the role-playing games I've ever played uh, to choose a rule system, knowing that I was going to play, in a sort of narrative heavy dice reduced dice game i don't i don't think i would choose first edition like that's you know because one of the things i like about first edition is is the weird nitty gritty mechanic stuff in there yeah and that and that's yeah and that that that's why i'm i'm a lot with you on with that too and when it it does definitely seem like there's a little bit of a. uh uh, juxtaposition there with with their narrative style play and then choosing one e although i guess if you're going to choose the dnd systems which are most available to people right i mean you got one e still readily available uh to people versus later editions which definitely become you know three four five become significantly more rules intense i guess whether you play it that way or not is irrelevant. I don't, I don't care. Right, right, right. Um, but, you know, you just, you do have more, at least there's a feeling of that, I guess, quote unquote feeling. Um, but I did, I did find that interesting yeah. too when he said that is when, because I did not know that about them, is that they were more of a narrative play style. And, and you know, we kind of just hand wave rules and we kind of roll through it. I'm like, I thought the same thing. I'm like, well, why the hell are you playing AD and D? I, it seems like BX would be more of your, um, would fit that style significantly better um where you just have a core mechanic basically and everything else is kind of floating in the breeze um 
Yeah. Wonder if it's just like the range of what's available. I mean, he talked about, you know, hey, yeah. they're they're between what what do you say, 77 and did you say 89? Is that where the cutoff was? I, I think so. Yeah. For his yeah, I mean, think, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, think that's, that's definitely a part of it. Yeah. I, and I don't I don't think one E is a bad choice by any stretch of matches. I love one E. It's 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 probably one of my favorite gay Simpsons ever. Um so I, I'm not I'm not coming at it uh negatively from that. I absolutely love one E and, and and I think I guess maybe that says something about the game system that that you can do that with it probably more easily than some others too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it does have that built-in flexibility, I guess, that you can, you know, kind of go in that direction. I, I I'm with you, Edwin. I think it's a little little bit of a if I were starting from scratch, it probably wouldn't be my choice to run that sort of thing. Um, but uh, I mean, it may be that. Uh, it's actually that it's sort of chaotic nature of having so many different subsystems and different mechanics and so forth makes it easier to ignore the things you choose to ignore. Like when I think about, you know, one of the, when I think about 5e, for example, versus AD&D, I absolutely don't think that 5e is a more complicated game. In fact, the reverse. But what I do think it is, is a much more self-consistent game. And I think when you have a, a sort of self-consistent, holistic kind of thing, it might be harder to say, well, I'm just going to ignore that. Mm-hmm. Or I'm going to tack everything... on this. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, or tack on that because, because I feel like the game is sort of thought about and designed holistically, whereas AD&D, no one can call that a holistically designed game. I mean... You know, it's, the, the yeah, difference so, between working on an American automobile and a German automobile, right? You know, I mean, like you, sure, you got a little, sure. little bit of play on the American one. You can add some things, take some, you know, well, but that so, German one's precision, man, precision. precision. <laughs> so also, I think if you if we explore like just you know, um, AD and D two is a system like we we're talking about that that range span. You know, um, now we we missed my pimp and NTX and conventions. Uh, in our non-recorded section, but you know, the one thing I, I you realize when you go to a lot of game conventions, especially back then, right, is you realize how many different ways people played AD and D, especially first AD and D back in the you know late seventies, early eighties. I mean, we we go to a game convention and with a bunch of my buddies, and we'd sit down at a table, and it'd be like ten people, so it'd be four or five of us and four or five other people, and it was amazing to see how radically different they interpreted or just flat out played the game than we did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, either it was like they were a whole hog, you know, immersive role playing with R-O-L-E, you know, and they could care less about rolling dice ever. It was very interesting to see that the variety of gameplay that was existent during, I think, 1E, I think sometimes we forget that, too, is that um, people have always played these games a little bit differently or put their own spin on it or house rule it. Um, and I, I think maybe that's, you know, an interesting way of, of why Tim looks at one either way he does, because that was their formative, you know, his formative time for AD&D. And he probably did see that variety of gameplay uh, back in the day. And he kind of latched on to the, the way he likes to play it. And he created Ben Dale with him and Luke. And, and that's where they went from there, which is, I think, kind of interesting, actually. So. Um, so again, people, all, all, all you wonderful listeners out there, if you haven't looked up Ben Shadale, check and you like one, definitely, definitely look them up. Um, 
uh, it might be definitely something for you. But getting away, it's, it's away from our, our old house in 1E too. Back to that. <laughs> yeah, so, so 1E, talking about like, you know, what is it about it that, that you know, we, we like that we would keep if we were running a game of it right now? Um, you know, talking about what it does well, what sort of house rules we throw out there. Uh, one of the things I like about it, and, and I think it ties into what we were just talking about, is that it seems to me, when I look at my AD&D books, there's always something new to find. There's always like, oh, yeah, I forgot about this little character class they had in, D in uh, the Dragon Magazine. Or, oh, you know, there's these rules here for, you know, whatever, uh, mining, you know, mining for gold and, you know, uh, granite, you know, rock base or whatever and just interesting little things here and there all throughout the rule books all throughout the, the different adventures and publications uh, that's one of the well, things it's I'm tremendously about. evocative i mean there's there's no question one e is has that going for it the books the books are the art within the books uh the the general layout of the books i mean i i i'm a huge one e guy i mean people who know me know i mean it, it, I've, I've played it my whole life it's always been my game of choice uh, when, you know, when I created Pacesetter 14 years ago, the first few modules we did, we did in kind of a BX format. Uh, and, and that was mainly because that was, I was still, you know, I had not, I didn't have a ton of OSR experience at that point and what I couldn't, couldn't do, but I knew I could do stuff like that versus cloning, you know, writing 1E stuff specifically. I was a little, you know, just wanted to watch my P's and Q's and then but then, you know, Pace at a graduate, we, were, we did pretty much 1E exclusively for almost 10 years. So, because that's my jive and I, I love it. And I, we, we had great, we got a lot of amazing people who love our, our 1E products. Um, so I like it as it is. I'm not one of those guys who likes to monkey with rules too much. Again, you know, I already spilled beans on it. I'm kind of a rules guy. So, you know, that, that said, you know, obviously there's things at 1E, which I never liked. I mean, our group never liked, obviously, psionics. And we keep bringing that up. I'm not, not going to beat that horse. It wasn't a thing for us. Um, you know, the, the same kind of things you hear a lot of people say we never use. Speed factor. You know, encumber, a lot of, mostly encumbrance rules out the window. Um, weapon yeah, versus AC. AC right? Weapon versus armor the, the modifiers. Versus armor, even more specifically, right? But most of the rest of the stuff, we honestly, we did keep. And we kept, we kept level limitations for, for non-human uh, races. We, that was part of our game. We, same here. We just lived with it. To be fair, our campaigns rarely survived past any fifth, sixth, seventh level where we even get to be conflict because we probably <laughs> all die before then. So, what about uh, what about restrictions on on what scores you had to have to be different classes? I'm sorry, say it again, Luke. We we definitely played with that. Minimum yeah, attribute no, scores, that, so yeah. you know your your ranger. You, you know you never have a paladin. We yeah, we, we <laughs> played that way. I mean, I, and it was kind of funny. We had a large group. We had like eleven guys in our gaming group, and we weren't all there every single game session. But everyone was pretty much played the same. No one ever gave. You know, had a problem with it. It probably was two or three years before somebody actually rolled up a paladin. I mean, it, that because for us that was call us, you know, simple minded, but we looked at the rule books and said, okay, these are the rules. And this is just how you play the game. Um, and, and it made sense to us, right? We didn't, we weren't thinking out of the box mm -hmm. so much of, of changing things around and, and uh, making things easier on us or saying, Hey, you know, let's just automatically give everyone max. I mean, 
we didn't do that. The max hit point, like I know a lot of people do max hit points at first level characters these days, that kind of thing. Oh my god, I don't think that. Yeah, oh my we god, did hell that no. back in I the day. Tell you how many we times did. I had a one hit point. You know, magic users are running around. You know, I mean, it's just <laughs> it is it, it is what it is, and uh, I enjoy a lot of that because to me, it's a it's a throwback of the game that was, and we enjoyed the hell out of it for summer after summer after summer. Um, is it something that I would play specifically? exactly the same way today not unless i wanted to say hey get a group of five or six guys hey let's play one e rules is written and uh and let's 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 throw back in 1979 or, or at least rules or rules as we used to interpret, interpret them, them. <laughs> um because yeah we weren't always so great at that either one of the things i was thinking about and i think one of the reasons that some of us like rules i often when somebody asks me about a role-playing game i say well you know, it's it's basically cops and robbers, except that you have somebody to help you decide whether you got shot or not, so you don't have to have any arguments. And I think one of the one of the reasons that we probably fell back on the rules uh, for the most part, although there were some things that I remember us arguing about and changing, but was to avoid arguments, right? I mean, if you're going to decide, well, can we play with full hit points? Okay, some people say yes, some people say no. Like whatever it is. Those, all those changes involve a whole bunch of non-gaming. Like there's a whole bunch of discussion and argument. And then when you mix to another group, that sort of comes back. But it comes back to the um, uh, the competition thing, the tournament thing. But I think more from a um, conflict avoidance almost than from a, you know, we weren't trying to have tournaments. We just to not have to discuss the rules, I think, or not have to... Uh, you know, we didn't have to worry about who, who got to be right. It was like, well, the book tells us who's right. And maybe we argue over the interpretation. So there's, I think that part of it was that we were young, immature and, and lacking self-confidence in some ways that kept us on the rules. And now I certainly feel super confident. You know, if I get together with a group of gamers as adults, I'm very comfortable saying, Hey, we can decide right. which rules we want. It's our game. And we're adults, we can have a conversation, we can just figure out which rules we want to play. And if we don't agree, then, you know, we don't all play together. And that's fine, too. Like, there's no, there's a lot less social pressure, I think. And so in some ways, and different groups, of course, would have like, so I can imagine a group of people that were good friends that decided to play D&D might have approached it differently from the group I was in, which was a group of people that became friends because we played D&D. We didn't otherwise know each other. But you know, over the years we got to know each other, but when we started, we were strangers. So I think there's, I think there's probably a lot of um, social stuff in there that is completely unrelated to the game and what rules are better or worse or who cares. It's just, you know, it's just us kids doing what we're doing. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's, yeah, it's very fair. I mean, like, again, I, I mean, I, I, I'm only going to, it's anecdotal. Let's go back to art. My experience of being hit a group of, like I said, it was really almost 11 of us all together and we're still close today that grew up within a two or three block radius. We're all within like two years age group of each other. So we're all adolescents playing AD and D back then. You know, I think when we first started playing the age range was probably 11 to 13. Um, and so at that age, you know, especially, I mean, I, I'll date myself, but in the seventies, I mean, believe it or not, rules existed back then. So, you know, I think we were more rule followers as kids. Right. And, you know, most of us played sports. I mean, believe it, I, I, it's weird to say it. Most of us were sports kids, um, which is, I guess, kind of odd for gamers back in general. But I played baseball and football. A bunch of my friends played football. A bunch of my whole other group, four of them played hockey. 
we have three kids that went to Catholic uh, elementary school uh, and grades middle school. So I think we were more uh, like you're seeing the social thing. We were like we were rules following by nature, right? And so you have a book in front of you with rules in it. You just take it for granted that that's that's how you're going to play the game. Now, obviously, we played other games. We had a board game, like I said, we were board game back. We played um, Starship Troopers and Outdoor Survival. Um, games along those lines, which are, you know, those are rule games. So I think uh, you're right, Edwin, that some of that societal thing or nature of the beast or attempts at human condition from back then plays into that. Definitely played into 1E. Do you guys, do you guys feel that 1E has more of like a, uh, like a challenge sort of atmosphere to it? Like, like this module is yes. here to challenge you as a game at, versus like this is here to Without facilitate question, a story. Especially the early stuff. I mean, well, the, the first eight out of the first yeah. like 11 modules they produced were tournament adventures. Again, we go back to this, we keep going back to this mm-hmm. tournament thing. I mean, it was absolutely there to challenge players. I mean, I think I think there's there's I think there's two things about AD&D for me stylistically, I guess, that really stand out. One is the um, the challenge nature and you know it's 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 from the writing of the, the the way rules are written all the way up to what the rules are and how the advice on how to play so that that's that thing is is that's one part of it um, the other one that I think is 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 there is the the sense of unknown and the sense of mystery and you know, it's sort of, you know, I always have that that vision that I think we all have of, you know, Gygax hiding behind his filing cabinet, rolling dice, and no one has any idea how the decisions are being made. But one of the things that I think that AD&D's uh, humble jumble of rule systems means is that the players really don't have any idea, at least early on, you know, for the first year or two as players, what's going on. And the adventures were definitely written with that same idea that it could be anything and i think now because there's more emphasis on shared narrative and sort of uh a shared world building and all of that kind of stuff and and air open rules like now the rules are in the player's handbook as opposed to the dmg right um for the most part the or approaching that that fundamental approach to the game is different and i feel like ad and d was is definitely the the pinnacle of that sort of the world is a mystery and slowly inch by inch you the players and your characters are going to uncover it um and that's something i think has not been replicated and i think is actually getting yeah. and i don't i'm not saying it's good or bad i mean there's that's aspect of the game but that, that remember has even changed like a the lot. verbiage like people used to say uh you know our game master is running us through white plume mountain Versus nowadays, people say, oh, we're playing a campaign of, you know, whatever. Uh, so, you know, even that has well, that feel. For sure. And so another interesting, you know, point out of this is, is we look back on the, 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 the evolution of AD&D as it, as it came out, right? And again, the, the way the rule books came out. But that, they weren't, that wasn't an island until itself. There were other products out there. I mean, we had, you had the home set with B1 and Search of the Unknown, B1 and Search of the Unknown is not, I mean, I understand it's in the home set, it's a homes module. That's an AD&D module. It really is. And it's 
again, we go back to that whole challenging part. That module is extremely challenging. It's designed to test the players and the characters almost every encounter. Um, and it had, you know, it had whole section in that module about how to be a DM, what this game is about. It's very, very one-ish. It doesn't read like anything out of the home set when you read that module. And it, it doesn't almost doesn't even fit in the box set. B, B2 would have been a better fit. Um, but, and then, you know, the other adventure modules that kind of came out in that two-year time frame with, you know, Tomb of Horrors and uh, the G series. So, you know, all of that, all of those things, I think, combined give AD&D, at least at the time, set the flavor of the game to, to what it came for a lot of us. Now, that obviously changed five, six, seven years down the road. Everyone kind of, you know, evolutionized up into uh, more storytelling and more, uh, not necessarily um, just challenge, challenge, challenge kind of thing. Um, so, but the early, early, you can only learn the game based on what's out there for the game. And that's what was out there for the game for the most part. There wasn't a, a, you know, really any fluff piece modules. I mean, put it the that way or, or narratives style modules. It just really weren't. Uh, Village of Hama was the closest that, that came to that. And that, mm -hmm. that freaking thing's a death trap for first level characters. So, um, but it, at least it had a, no, it is true because I think I mean I think one of the things we, we when we talk about some of the older adventures for D and D is that you know they didn't even have to make sense except yeah. in as much except in as much as they had to make uh, some sort of logical sense that there was a chance of the the players figuring out whatever the puzzle was but narratively they didn't have to make any sense at all it was just here's a bunch of problems solve them uh, and I yeah and so that I absolutely feel that this was a uh designed as a as a challenge as a yeah. as a us against well, them. I, I think uh where the us is the author us is sort of the <laughs> author the gm the yeah, players, players. And then, the, the players. <laughs> so I, I don't know i i think from from my perspective you know this old house treatment of, of one e for me is you know i don't think i would it, i'm i'm gonna sound like i did on a couple of our other things that reviewed i really wouldn't change anything to do with it other than some of the things, again, that we talked about, speed factor, weapon attack versus certain armor, armor class, psionics, which is totally just, it, it bizarrely was placed in the player's handbook. Um, it's like someone needed work count to, to get up and, and <laughs> cash in a little bit more on, on, you know, three cents a word or whatever. But um, I, I, I just I just love 1E the way it is, and I, I don't think I'd want it to be different or change it. I mean, we got that anyway, right? We got that when 2E came around. We got our changes. We have our different editions. So if your flavor of D and D is a little different than than more of the adversarial um, uh, challenge mode of sort of like one E, you have the other game systems to do that, that 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 change more to a narrative style, or but still incorporate all that great D and D stuff. Um, you you have that in other editions. Doesn't make to me again. I'm I'm an anti edition war guy. None of it makes to me any. There's no there isn't one best edition. There's, there's what's best for you mm -hmm. and your group and what you have fun with. As long as you have fun with it, who gives a shit what edition you're playing? Um, but I, I really love AD&D for what it is and, and how uh, people play at the table when they're playing 1E because it it's definitely different. I mean, there's, you, you, especially if you're playing, like I said, one of these old 1E modules, the whole play style kind of changes because the, 
the fear of dying the minute you open up that next door is ever <laughs> present in ADD, right? It's, it's, it's always there. The thing I like about it is also the thing I think I would, I, I would take a close look at. I, I loved going through the AD&D books and seeing all the different classes that, that sort of came about. And I know a lot of people are booing me right now, uh, you know, with the Cavalier and the, you know, the uh, uh, monk and all that, but, but, <laughs> the archer, but the uh, every the every class had its own XP table, had its own little nuances, and when you set into that path as a player, uh, it was it was a world of exploration that was it was your world. It's so different than you know your friend Joe over here who's doing the you know magic user or what have you. And I really like that. But then I think. If you're going to run a campaign, a first edition AD&D, you do have to really look at those classes, especially the unearthed arcana stuff and look at, you know, is this too much? Is, you know, do you need to put some caveats on some of those class powers, uh, but not so much so that it kills their flavor. But, uh, man, I, you know, a, a lot of what we take for granted as D&D classes nowadays, you know, the paladin, the barbarian, uh, stuff like that, druid those were all developments that came as time progressed through first edition. And, and I think it's just wonderful. Well, the character classes are a huge part of one. E as far as you could tell Gary was, um, it was really important to him to enforce or, or push the fact that you need to have a very well-balanced, well-rounded party of characters to kind of make it through this game and play this game mm -hmm. and, and, and pull the most out of it. Um, plus they have survivability um, that changes obviously I think a little bit in later editions um, but in one e you know I mean you you got to have those two or three fighters you got to have your magic user. you got to have your thief laying around with you as thief stuff and you absolutely have to have a magic user laying, you know it, it just you just have to have that to make the game function at its best I think um, and then you've got I love the variety that you can throw a druid in you can throw a monk in or how I mean, what would never fight there? You, you could play an assassin in one E. How freaking awesome is that? <laughs> so uh, it's almost impossible. It's hard to do it, but you can play an assassin. It's an actual player character. I, I, I'm going to argue more so, than, more so than a bard. They threw the bard in a freaking appendix, for God's sakes. So there it is. Edwin, final thoughts? Okay, so if, if I were playing with a, you know, a, a bunch of people that grew up on AD&D, um, I'd be happy to play AD&D as it was back then. If I were trying to introduce AD&D to newer players um, and sort of thinking back to the frustrations I had, and, you know, I think I feel like a lot of our, a lot of my love for AD&D is, is simply nostalgia because I remember like when I really think about it, being pretty damn frustrated a lot of the time with the game as it was, you know, when I was 10 or 12. And I think a lot of that has to do with the lack of flexibility, the lack of what we now call player agency, right? That you are, you know, you've got the dice, the dice control, what character, you know, you roll your stats and then suddenly you're limited to, to what classes you can be. And you've only got a few races available because the match, you know, you've got to get all those matched and your alignment is, is called by based on that. And uh, there's just so like, there's so much there and it's so mm -hmm. inaccessible um, unless you are willing to play for 
several years. You know, if you're, if you can play eight hours a day or sorry, eight hours a session for, you know, once a week for three years, you can absolutely explore AD and D. But if you're going to have a single campaign for three months and you're going to play two hours a week or two hours every other week or something like that, and you're so limited on what you can do, you know, if you're really trying to follow the rules in terms of what you can do as a player and what you can be as a player, I feel like you just would miss out on so much. So I think I would probably, well, I mean, so in some sense, I'd say miss out. On the other hand, what you're missing out on, maybe we could say is the game, right? Is that lack of flexibility, that lack of openness. Um, But I think if I were to run it today for people who were not brought up in it, I would probably try to open it up a little bit to say, sure, you want to be a paladin? Let's, let's make that work. You want to be a ranger? We can absolutely make that work. I'm not going to make you, uh, you know, be a, be a slave to your dice uh, in rolling up a character. Like, I don't, I don't even understand, you know, I understand the benefit of that, again, if it's a tournament, and I understand that it works if you're playing for years or whatever, but it just seemed, <laughs> it seemed cruel. Like, it just it seems like the DM has all this power, and the player is just, like, locked into this. Uh, this little closet yeah i mean there's there's no getting around that but we we played a lot as, as a kid we played a lot and you know it's also it's it's a le- very lethal game I and mean, we can't we can't get around that ADD yeah. is a lethal game yeah. so you know and when we die we die we roll up and i'm right, fine with that well, I'm fine with, that's fine when you die you just roll up a new character you know and it's, yeah. it's how it was one more chance um, to roll those but, stats but it took us i mean we we wanted to play i remember you know, the, the giant series of modules came out or way early on in the game, but they're like, you know, eighth, ninth level starting level adventure to, to play in the thing. Well, I mean, our higher level characters probably third level at the time. It took us like two years to get enough of us to have enough members of the actual core party that we can even attempt to do Hill Giant. Um, just because now in a way it was, I loved every minute because it was cool as hell, but it took, for what you're saying, I, I agree with that the progression just took forever. I mean, if I were running ADD today, I'd do the same thing. I would, I would start hand waving a lot of, especially at the beginning. Yeah, you want to be a paladin? Good. Here, you know, we we'll do some rolling, but you're going to get the minimums yeah. in each flip these each points from there to there. Yeah. Make it. Yeah, we're just gonna we're gonna we're we're gonna move along right. here, and we're gonna you know, and, and when I'm running adventures, we're gonna progress through levels. You know, we always did gold counters experience. We're gonna definitely do that. You know, we're gonna move things along. So that the game actually does progress, because it, 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 I will 100% agree. AD&D can get very boggy, right? It can get very boggy really quick, um, as far as level progression goes. It can take you a long time to get anywhere, um, especially if you're playing more of a narrative style. If you're not killing things and taking your treasure all the time, <laughs> right, you're not out. getting anywhere. You're, you're, yeah, you're, you're not, going you're nowhere not fast. <laughs> You're not stealing yeah, every breaking the piece. down, checking the coins yeah. of the uh, monsters. Yeah. Got to do it all, man. <laughs> you got to get it, man. <laughs> How much is that dinner plate you worth? Bring, you know, why did you guys bring 80 pack meals to that dungeon? Because we're taking everything out. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I think that's my thoughts on one. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. Wonder who it's from. My opinion is letter writer is a total wacko. Let's move along. We got. Uh, we only have one letter tonight. Uh, we've got uh, this is from the lone DM. Uh, he's uh, I think he or she. This is actually interesting because there's only one letter, and it is the lone DM. Uh, and that means that if uh, if I can 
get my geek credit tonight. Uh, the, the lone DM is going to have to give me a mailing address. I might actually get to figure out or find out who the lone DM is because that's all they've ever signed their messages by. So that's Gmail account. No, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's a PO box in, uh, in Western <laughs> Iowa. <laughs> all right. The, uh, the lone DM writes, uh, that's right. I'm back again, guys. It's been fun listening to your show over the last six months. You've hit some really big adventures and had some great guests. I particularly enjoyed episode 13 with the holiday theme modules. And of course, the last one where you talked about my jam, Tomb of Horrors. I felt that your statement, it's a good game if everybody understands what they're getting into, was very fair. Still, for those of us that love Death Trap Dungeons, do you have any other adventures you would suggest for play? Is there any equivalent to Tomb of Horrors in other categories of roleplay, such as a sci-fi death trap run, etc.? I once ran some champion supers through a villain's lair, knitted out to test, or I'm sorry, kitted out to test all their characters' vulnerabilities. It was pretty neat to see the characters have to lean on one another to get through. Keep up the good work. I don't always agree with your take on the games, but I will. I always love the conversation and I'm excited to see what you guys cover next. P.S. I hope Bill got back from the moon or wherever he was broadcasting from. J.K., the lone DM. All right. So Death Trap Dungeons, other than Tomb of Horrors, and especially in other categories of RPs. What do you think? Uh, go ahead. Why don't you start? What do you have, Lou? <laughs> oh, man. I read the letter. Let somebody else talk. <laughs> um i had two thoughts and one of them i can't quite uh put my finger on but somebody was talking about taking tome of horrors and was that you even moving it into space like i feel like I tome of horrors is because i've got i have some vision in my head of like tomb of horrors on as a space station adventure and i don't remember if, if it was one of us talking about it it certainly wasn't me or something else that i had heard on a podcast but like i feel like you could take that adventure and move it in time and space pretty easily um because it's just a bunch of traps so Uh it's you know the trappings uh, the flavor of it could be anything and and it would work pretty well um i think in terms of other stuff uh i mean i can i can certainly pimp our own rap and ethic every level but it has a lot of levels which i think would satisfy um someone's trapaholic uh nature and sort of just the idea of a dungeon designed as a challenge designed to challenge players and characters um so those are the two things i had off the top of my head yeah as far as he's he's talking about different rule systems right completely different rules yeah like so I don't I don't know any off the top of my head. I mean, I know he mentions like uh, did he mention champions in there, right? Yeah, that he had uh, created a villain's layer or something. Like that so effect, yeah. I mean, champions kind of has that one. I mean, it's the, their stronghold adventure. It's definitely not anything like Tomb of Horrors, but that was a little bit more like that. Um, uh, but it's, it's it's that's a stretch. I mean, I'm, I, anything I'm going to say right now is an absolute stretch. Um, I don't know if there's one for paranoia um it seems to me i thought there was a paranoia adventure that was more of a slaughterhouse <laughs> more so when than you're the rest thinking about that game system yeah there's got to be one of the things there's i think there's one that's a little bit more there's none in the original piece of stuff so I, I i thought back through all those uh chill uh uh 
Time Master or uh, Star Ace. There's there's nothing in there. Um, I, I you know I'm not well versed. Like I know I mean obviously uh, Merp doesn't have anything remotely close to that. I know. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it doesn't fit a lot of, of it genres, doesn't. right? I mean, it, it doesn't fit, fit Star Wars in any way. Uh, uh, fit, you know, right. so there's a the, lot of games where it just there'd be no reason for it. The, the yeah, one, I, I, I don't know. The one thing I could think of, uh, you know, being a big Star Wars D6 fan, uh, there's a module for it called the Game Chambers of Questall, where basically the the there's this kind of like almost an evil Jedi Sith kind of character who's uh, made this underground layer under the city that basically tests uh, the characters, especially Jedi, to, to, you know, push them to their edge, try to turn them to the dark side. And it's got kind of that death trap sort of feel to it. Um, and then I, I, I think... I was just going to no, say there's a, a new adventure out, and I'm trying to figure out, okay, it's Goodman Games. Uh, they apparently have the Grimtooth license right now. So there's a new adventure called Grimtooth's Museum of Death, which is a bunch of the Grimtooth traps uh, laced into an adventure. I, I've not played it. I've never not read it, but uh, I assume that would be kind of along the Tomb of Horrors flavor there. Yeah, I, I think that, so I don't think like, you know, I think a lot of game systems are going to have death trap segments and maybe an adventure, but the whole thing being a death trap, I, I don't see that fitting in a lot of things. You know, again, it, it, it also harkens back to, we got to, we got to remember the context of Tomb of Horrors, it was an adventure written by Gary, designed to screw over all his players that had been bragging and they couldn't throwing they couldn't down to the gauntlet. Yeah. And then and then he you know made it a, a tournament adventure, which is again designed to purely test people um uh and, and wipe them out, uh, you know, survival of the fittest kind of thing. Um, which there yeah, it, you know, Tunnels and Trolls has one and it is called Death Trap Equalizer, I think. Is, <laughs> They're uh, in the title. Yeah, is, I think Death Trap Equalizer. Oh, you know, I played. Is sort I of. I played a short, a short uh, Death Trap, like a, a, an arena style Death Trap thing with. But I was also thinking that um, you really all you'd need to do is go back to any uh 1970s 1980s 12 year olds notebook yeah. and like we all have one <laughs> or two or that. <laughs> uh, mine says math class on the front i don't know about you but yeah yeah um, it can no tear teach i i just don't know how much the, the death trap dungeon is, is an entire thing ports over to most of the game systems too well i mean obviously like we said i think we we're touching on a few of them I, 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 I've read a lot of stuff and I just don't really see anything necessarily like it. And I don't know what I'd want to. Um, I think having a, a, like, there's certainly adventure modules in different game systems that have death trap components, you know, it might be like if it's a four chapter adventure. One of the chapters might be kind of like, Hey, you're trapped in this thing. And you got to get out. And there's three or four really hard encounters to get through that kind of thing. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't think so for tumors. Like I said, I, Tunnels and Trolls definitely with Death Trap Equalizer, and there's actually a couple of more. Tunnels and Trolls has some absolutely uh, horrendous, challenging <laughs> solo adventures in there. There's some that are really bad. Um, uh, you, you know, what about uh, uh, what was uh, Mayfair? Uh, the Roll Aids. I think they so had they one. might have. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, you've got should have done more Roll research. Sorry about that, Lone Nim. 
Roll eight of paranoia. A, I'll look into that before next episode. Yeah, I think there's probably there. about a dozen. I mean, I would have to. I really got. I didn't get a chance to do much research on this at all. To be honest with you, but I, I was kind of thinking off the top of my head. I, I would have to go in and actually look. And I, I'm actually interested, so I probably will go go through and and see what I can find um, along these lines. But it's a cool question, and um, also kind of shows the uniqueness of two more horrors, right? So, cool yeah. product. I wanted to uh, to comment on one other part of that also that I also don't agree with everything we say. <laughs> but enjoy the conversations. <laughs> I don't agree with half the things I say. <laughs> exactly. Listen, exactly. Going, what, what was I saying? Myself. What the hell was I thinking? I didn't mean that. <laughs> That's why I always listen back on these and so I come back on the next episode and say, hey, here's where I effed up. <laughs> apologies for the last episode. <laughs> uh, well, I do have, uh, I got to throw out uh, Mech Warrior. Uh, Godfrey from the last episode had asked about that system and whether it's any good in uh, kind of emulating oh, yeah, yeah. some of the uh, Secession War novels yeah. and whatnot. So um, the version I have is actually old. It's uh, it's the second edition version of the role-playing game. And after doing some research, I guess every version is fairly different from the, the next. So right now they're on fourth edition, which is a Catalyst product. Uh, prior to that, they had uh, third edition and a, a third edition that was put out by a different company, but basically the same rules. So a little ca caveat there. I'm looking at just the second edition rules, and uh, they are really pretty simplistic. Making a character is pretty detailed. You know, you get that, you know, late 80s, uh, um, Twilight 2000, Shadowrun, uh, you know, kind of thing where you're, you're going through every piece of the character's life to kind of figure out what skills they're going to have and, and what equipment they get and all that by the end. But uh, the system itself is just like the tabletop game, 2D6, try to hit above a number. Um, there are some, uh, some non-combat skills, uh, diplomacy type stuff. Uh, I think it is tilted towards being a mech warrior and, and doing the whole mech piloting combat thing. But, but there are skills in that game and, and some setting information that I think would allow you to do more of the RP thing if that's where you wanted to head. So that's my report. Good. It's good to know. All right. I'd like to say that this is the end of the episode, but, uh, you know, we got to see if the lone DM gets a little something. So uh, I'll, uh, I'll throw out, I've, I've got a copy of Levi Combs. He's been a guest on the show. I've got a copy of his oh, nice. Ray Guns and Robots. Robots, nice. not robots. That's a great little sci-fi uh, uh, booklet there with <laughs> lots, of, lots of cool characters, uh, uh, equipment, um, places. It's got a nice little adventure that, uh, that, that uh, an up-and-coming uh, writer put in there. <clears throat> Me. <laughs> so I've got a copy of that that I'm going <laughs> to go to gift uh, if I win this uh, episode of Geek Credit. So here we go. All right. Uh, Bill, did you uh, bring anything or is this on uh, me? Uh, no, I've got one. You can go first. I do have a couple. All right. So I'm going to I'm going to start. So, uh, Lou, as usual, you uh, uh, you gave us a bunch of categories and we were free to choose from any of those categories and any of those questions. Um, one of the things you mentioned was that you are uh, big on 1780s music and pop culture. <laughs> 19, 19. Oh, man. oh okay, I know okay, Beethoven. Okay. I think he's in uh, there somewhere. Now. All right. So. Uh, I have a, a couple of uh, Edgar Allan Poe questions for oh, you. Yes. I'll start with one of those. 
Um, so Edgar Allan Poe coined which of the following word or phrase? A, detective fiction. B, tales of horror. C, short story. D, Ravenesque. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Cavalier Dupont, who is the detective in uh, three different stories of Edgar Allan Poe. So detective stories is where I'm headed. So he is occasionally credited with uh, developing the first detective stories, but he apparently has the first recorded use of short story. Ah. Well, maybe I don't get to find he out. He also apparently <laughs> coined... Well, we'll find out. Yeah, yeah. He also coined uh, tentabulation, which is an awesome word uh, that I did not know was his, but that one I thought would be too easy for you because you'd pull it out of, uh, is it in one of his, it's one of his stories. But anyway, um, so are you ready, Bill, or should I carry on with Edgar Allan Poe? I got, I got one. So I'm gonna, I'm, we're going okay, to, go we're it. talking about ad and I'm going to, I'm going to roll over to ad and Lou, right. and I don't, I don't really care if this was on your list or not of, of stuff you're talking about. <laughs> Um, so we've got the core three books for AD&D, which were uh, Player's Handbook, Monster Manual, Dungeon Master's Guide, right? What was the fourth book created for AD&D? Hardcover. Right. Hardcover book. Uh, I can make a multiple choice if you want. Uh, let me, I'll go out on a limb on this. So uh, just to kind of give people the internal, internal gears clicking here. Uh, Eldritch Wizardry came out, but I think it was no. Those are those are little brown books. We're yeah, that was hard. yeah. I was gonna say that was before the yep. the AD&D line. I'm gonna make so, it. El I'm gonna make it. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, so we've got Theme Folio, Deities and Demigods, Monster Manual Two. Uh, Deities and Demigods. Bingo. Yep, got it. Right. It's close. Theme Folio and Monster Manual Two came out exactly uh, one year after that. But yeah. the Infolio came out, which is kind of fascinating, right? That that came out um, the way it did. I mean, I actually had to look it up. I mean, I should have remembered. But, yeah, they came out the core three books and then and out pops deities and demigods. <laughs> so you I, can actually try and wipe out all the gods on the planet. So, <laughs> cool. Yeah, I was looking at my Fiend Folio just this last weekend. And uh, have you ever looked at the I'm back sorry. cover? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, it's got the grill in it, man. I love the grill. Anyhow. Uh, back cover of it. Have you ever looked at the back cover? Yes. It's so corny. It's like a little circle that has a, a this is an example of what's in this book. It has like a little yes. monster right up. <laughs> it's just everything about that book is so terrible. It's just, it's just <laughs> terrible. Uh, all right. So I got one point. We're, we're, we're getting there, Lone DM. We're getting there. Working on it. All right. Um, so Edgar Allan Poe added which of his three names later in life? Edgar, Ellen, or Poe? Man, so I don't know this one. My, my gut, of course, is telling me, oh, it's got to be the middle name, right? But then that's too easy, right? So I'm going to, I'm just going to, you know, hell marry it here. Uh, I'm going to say Edgar. So he was born Edgar Poe and then was uh, lost his parents and was brought up by the Allens. And added Alan. Ah, man. I would have uh, said, Lou, uh, I would have said the same thing. There's something about it that I would have said Edgar was, was yeah, it just I seemed agree. too obvious to say the middle. Yeah, I, 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 I gotta I confess, know. I don't know a whole lot about his life other than, you know, the whole uh, Hydromania uh, 
theory of, of you know how he died and all that but uh uh, I, I know the stories pretty well, but okay, all right. All right, we'll move on to the eighties, no, uh, the nineteen eighties now. I, I've grilled so many people so hard. This is this has come up in here. I like this. All right, I'm gonna we'll go back to eighty eighty because I, I all right, Lou. All right, Lou. We've got uh, four. It, it, it's arguable, first of all, whether these are all first edition AD and D books or not, but they they do fall into the first edition hardcover set. Uh, bizarrely enough. But what was the last, you did the first, what was the last book that came out in the AD&D hardcover, basically, which is the orange spine of the set. So there's, the, I'm going to give you a basically, I'm not going to give you the last three, but I'm going to give you three that were, came out definitely at the very end. And that was Greyhawk Adventures, Adventures in Forgotten Realms, and Dragonlance Adventures. Which of those three hardcovers was actually the last book to be considered a 1E expansion book? Okay, we're talking about the hardcovers, right? So they, they're hardcovers. Uh, they're actually hardcover because, books. Because the Forgotten Realms one, I'm, I'm fairly certain, is stamped with second edition. Uh, it is. I'll give you, a, and I'm not giving you a clue either way, but so is one of the others. So, okay, so again, the choices were the, the Greyhawk, Forgotten Realms, or Dragonlands. Yes, two of them were stamped with with second edition on it. Really? They're also, they're also kind of considered one e books, believe it or not. Okay. Even though they were, came out for the two e system, hmm. because you know I mean, this isn't a clue, but remember one uh, Forgotten Realms, the first version of that was for one e. Yeah, it was in the the gray box set yeah, with the, the box set, yeah, the horse riders and the gal. Yeah. yeah. Um. I. And I'm, I'm, I, I might regret it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay in that camp. I'm going to say it's the Forgotten Realms. It is. Right. It was the last one. And this is, it's an arguable thing. A lot of people say, well, it was, it was never really a 1E book. It's just, a lot of people consider it a 1E falls into that canon book because they're all made exactly the same way. And then they never made them like that ever again. So, yeah, but, yeah. I, I, I've heard a lot of people say that it was already in the hopper before the label change. And that that's it, kinda... it definitely was because you, you got some other weird things too, like the monster manual two. Um, even though that was the book, that was the, that book came out, I think uh, that was a six, we're at the fiend folio. The last printing of monster manual two, was two years after one e had already been canceled and two e was already in the production, huh. so they were still printing two e or they were still printing one e monster manual twos two years after one e debut or two a debut, and for Adventures Forgotten Realms actually came out before that, so that's that's I think kind of why we're like I'm in that camp where I argue well, it's it's I know it's just two e on the book but it's a one e book so, yeah. Um, but yeah no you got it you know excellent it. all right yeah great final final chance yeah. here. Greyhawk right. Adventures came out way early. Just that oh, yeah. I mean, one of those sequences. Greyhawk came out way early. Uh, and the Dragonlance one came out, you know, not, it was at the end, definitely at the tail end. That's the other one that has the 2E stamp on it. Huh. Yeah, I think my version, I, I have to look at it when I get home, but I, I don't think it, uh, it has, it may, maybe on the inside or something. But I think well, on the cover, okay. it is just the regular. I'm sorry. I, no, no, no. I did get that wrong. Um, Dragonlance does not have the 1E stamp on it. It still says AD&D on it, but now, I think they sure came out, yeah, right at that two-week time. But point. I think their box set, they're kind of like the flip-flop of Forgotten Realms, where their box set yes. was second edition, but they're, yeah. Exactly. Oh. Yep, they're exactly the opposite. All right, Ed, well, where are we like, going? I feel like there we, we, we got a bunch more money lore in there. 
Uh, yeah, I was going to say wh- whether or not you get the questions right, you are definitely demonstrating your geekness. <laughs> so geek them, I feel man. like I feel like the. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna move us up just a few years, um, perhaps. What year was Live Aid held? The concert, 1989, 1985, 1983, or 1981. I believe Live Aid was 89. I want to say. I remember like. Wait, wait a minute. What was the Live Aid was the one in Africa? Is that correct? I guess you can't tell. Yes, right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the, the big Bono. Bono did the, the big African. Uh, I, I believe it was. Yeah. Uh, but that was close to Joshua. I was full bore in the army at the time. I don't remember anything about that time frame, but I, I must stay with. I'm gonna go with the eighty nine. Eighty nine was uh, was my guess also, but it is apparently nineteen eighty five. Eighty five. Okay. Wow, I would not have guessed that either. No. Uh, DM, yeah. your identity uh, is safe, yeah, for, safe now. for now. <gasps> I didn't get my geek credit, folks. Oh, well. You, you found it out here first. I'll have to bone up for next time. We blame yeah. everyone. Well, or, or fact check. You know, if, if I'm wrong on any of these, uh, Lone Diev, feel free to, uh, <laughs> to send a correction and then get your copy of uh, uh, I tell you what, Robot. I, I hate for anyone to lose on my account, so we'll, we'll send you that copy. It'll just have little, little tear stains on it from uh, my misery <laughs> of having lost my geek credit here. Awesome. Um, awesome. Well, folks, uh, I hope we can somehow get you part of that interview uh, from Tim Connolly. Uh, maybe I can get him to, to send us just, you know, the rundown of the Benchley Dale Academy, because I think that's a really important piece of, of uh, you know, just perpetuating the hobby, perpetuating a, a you know, piece of, of history in the hobby. Um, so we'll try to get that tagged on here somehow, some way, or, or get a separate episode with that in it. Um, and anyhow, uh, this has been Lou Alu. Hey, this is Edwin. Good night, everyone. It's Bill. All right. Happy gaming, folks. We'll talk with you next month when we'll have uh, Chris Holmes, son of Eric Holmes, on to talk about uh, the Blue Box uh, Holmes edition and uh, the Tower of Xenopus. This old dungeon. Supposed to blow the bloody doors off.